1 Peter 2, 4 through 8 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, or a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, church. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Um, first, uh, on the decorating, if you're staying around after, there will be pizza. We're grabbing lunch. So I saw a lot of heads perk up then. So I think we'll have about a dozen more people, guys. Number two, I just want to make it clear that we can totally celebrate Christmas before Thanksgiving, okay? All this talk about Thanksgiving, I just want to make it clear that it is okay to be singing Christmas songs as you're preparing your thankful dishes, right? I think it even makes me happier, more thankful when I think about Christmas. I would like some of you Scrooges to try it, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on this. I'm not going to let it up. We can both be thankful and watch Home Alone at the same time. I mean, celebrate the birth of Jesus. Um, hey, this morning, uh, like you've seen, we're going to be in First Peter. And I want to begin with a question that we all ought to know the answer to very quickly, but it might cause you to pause and think for a moment. And the question is this, who are you? Who are you? If someone approaches you, that's kind of a, an odd question to begin with, right? But if someone approaches you and you don't know them and they ask you the question, who are you, what comes to mind? Some of you might first think of your job or your career, what you do with the majority of your time. Well, I'm a teacher or I'm a lawyer or I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm a student. Some of you might think first of your race or your heritage or where your lineage is from and you want to talk about that. Some of you want to make it really clear in the more immediate term where you're from that I'm from Texas, the greatest country on earth. We know, guys. We know. We know. Texas is the best. Some of you might describe your personality. Well, do you want to know my Myers-Briggs or my Strength Finder? Well, I'm a three on the Enneagram with a two wing, and if I'm in strength, I'm a seven. I don't know if that combo is right. Some of you are wondering why I'm doing math. Some of you might think of your immediate family. Well, I'm a, I'm a dad, or I'm a mom, or I'm a grandpa or my grandma, you want to gush on and on about your kids or your grandkids and how much you love that role that you fulfill. Some of you might think of your hobbies. I'm a crossfitter. I'm an avid reader. I love to be out in nature. I'm big into running. Maybe you identify by not running. I love those little 0.0 stickers. That's who I identify with. But this question, who are you? It's really getting at our identities. Who are we really? Now, we're at a place in 1 Peter where he finds it necessary to stop and pause and remind them of who they are in Jesus. In part, he's reminding them of their standing towards God, and it's changed because of Jesus, but also what happens to them as a result of this changing, uh, the, the change in perspective with Jesus. So because of the cultural current that they're swimming in now, now, then, 
and the cultural current that we're swimming in today, this is a needed reminder to pull back and be reminded of our true identities as they've been changed and shaped by God. So how, let's step back a little bit. How might his first readers receive this? A couple different times in this book, 1 Peter, he refers to them as exiles, not so much in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. Paul gets at this in Philippians 3. I, help, I think it helps us understand what he's trying to get at. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So they're living in this foreign land, far from home. But coupled with being exiles, living in this far from home land, they experience suffering, in part because they live in a broken world and experience pain and suffering, and in part because they are set apart and they look different from those that don't follow Jesus. We see him reference some form of suffering or maligning, I think eight different times in this short letter of 1 Peter. So let me ask, can you relate? As followers of Jesus, do you often feel like you're exiles living far from home? Do you sometimes feel that you've been maligned or spoken out against as evil simply because you're trying to live an honorable and godly life? So this is where Peter pauses and he reminds us who we are in Jesus. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Last week, if you missed it, I thought Jeremy did a really good job of showing us how important our cravings are and he challenged us with Peter's challenge to crave the spiritual milk, which is what actually helps us grow up into Jesus. Now, this section that we're in that began last week, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, it's this command and declaration sandwich, okay? Let me, let me kind of unpack that a little bit. The first three verses are a command, and then the last two verses are a command. Last week, we saw that uh, Peter says that if you've tasted that the Lord is good, crave the spiritual milk, and put off the old self. Remember that? Now, at the end of this section, 11 and 12, he says a similar command. It's just a little more broad. He says, abstain from the passions of your flesh. So at the, the end of this section, the top and the bottom, it says, this is how you ought to live. But in the middle, with the section we'll be in today and then the one we'll get into right when we come back uh, in January, there's declarations of who we are in Jesus, who we are as the people of God. So whatever you're coming in with this morning, I think Peter is speaking to you. Maybe you're very aware this morning that you're in exile in a foreign place and you feel very far from home. Maybe you've experienced particular trials or suffering this week. Maybe your sin has created friction and you're feeling the weight of that this morning. Maybe you're dreading going home, as we just, as Kitten just mentioned, that you know uncomfortable conversations are waiting for you, and you just don't want to go home. Or maybe this, these are your first holidays without a loved one, and, and the loss you feel is unbearable. Peter is speaking to all of us. He acknowledges all of these things in his letter, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the maligning, the loss, and it's almost as if he stops to say, hey, you're in Jesus. And that has significant ramifications for us in the best possible way. Remember who you are in him. So starting in verse 4, he begins with, as you come to him. Now when we read that, as you come to him, this has both past tense, as you first came to him in your salvation, when you were justified. But there's also implied here an ongoing, as you keep coming to him. 
as you keep remembering the gospel, as you keep drawing near to Jesus, as you keep trusting in his continued work on your behalf, if you've tasted that he's good, as you come to him, something is happening to you. But what are you drawing near to, or who are you drawing near to? It's interesting that Peter's language here, he calls Jesus a living stone. Even my youngest daughter, who is three, knows that rocks aren't alive, right? Rocks, they're not living. If you ask any children, I'll just think of my children. If you ask my kids, name things for me that are alive. You're going to hear pets, uh, other animals, people, plants. You may hear some other things. You're not going to hear rocks. Rocks are alive. If you do, your oldest is going to correct your youngest and make sure that they're they know they're wrong. As it turns out, though, stones is not an original idea of Peter's, who knew his Old Testament pretty well. He quotes for us three different Old Testament verses. I think they'll be on the screens here. Here they are. Behold, this is Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Isaiah 8, 14 a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Why is he calling him a stone? Why is Peter referring to Jesus as a stone? When we look back at the Old Testament, we see some pretty big proclamations about this stone. Now, did Peter come up with this himself? He certainly did not. He's actually learning how to interpret these verses from Jesus himself, who also quotes Psalm 118, 22, in Matthew 21. So I'm gonna read this parable for us from Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. So in the crowd here, we've got the followers of Jesus. His disciples are with him, but he's speaking directly to the religious leaders. Let's listen to what he says. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, and, he, and they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will surely respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So Jesus poses this question now towards these leaders, sort of like Nathan did with David, right, in the Old Testament. He says, what should I do? Here's this situation. What, what now should they do? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And here it comes. You guys ready for it? Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, here's Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Good, because he tells them, I'm speaking about you guys. They perceived this. They realized. And though it made them mad and they wanted to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus, in, in what he's doing here, he's speaking to the religious leaders, but 
His disciples are in the crowd, so let's just take Peter's perspective. Peter's there. What is Jesus doing for Peter? He's doing two things. He's showing him the hermeneutic or the way to translate these Old Testament passages. He's saying, hey, that stone that is written about in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm that. I'm the stone. And number two, he's showing his disciples that the builders that rejected the stone aren't foreign nations. They're not just Gentiles. They're the people within their tribe, the religious leaders. They are the builders that have rejected the stone. And again, he's the living stone. What makes him alive? Well, it's so obvious. It's the resurrection, right? The resurrection makes him the living stone. These religious leaders that hated him, rejected him, despised him, they hated him to the point where they crucified him on a cross, thinking that this would be the end of all their problems that Jesus was creating. But that wasn't the end of him, right? On that third day, when his heart began beating again, the stone of the tomb was rolled away, and he walked out of the grave. You know what dead stones don't do? They don't walk out of the grave. Dead stones stay dead. But this stone, the foundation of the church, is a living stone. Peter describes for us what happens later in his book in chapter 2, starting in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to, to, the, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so what happens to us when we come to him and we receive this healing that Peter's talking about? We have sinned, though he has not. We are not perfect, though he is entirely perfect. Therefore, as the perfect sacrifice, he, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to be the bridge to bridge the gap between us and God. When we've sinned, there's this massive chasm between us and God. He's perfect, we're not, so there's this gap. And Jesus comes, and he's the perfect bridge, making a way for us to be made right with God. But more than that, we become like him, Peter says, as a bunch of little living stones. Peter helps us to see that because of Jesus, we're not just tolerated by God. We're not just made to occupy the same space as God. We are made like him. So on the one hand, over and over, he's drawing them in in this letter saying, you've suffered, you've experienced trials, you experienced the fall here on earth. This is not your home. But hey, Jesus was reviled, and he didn't revile in return. Jesus also suffered, but he didn't threaten in return. Jesus was rejected by men, so you ought to be able to identify this, with this man. You've been reviled, you've suffered, you've been rejected, Got it. So has Jesus. But don't just identify with his sufferings, Peter says. He goes on. Jesus was, what does the text say? From the Old Testament, and he quotes it here, Jesus was chosen and precious. All the way back in Isaiah, we read the stone that's rejected by many has been chosen by God, and he's precious to God. He's delighted in, he's celebrated, he's set apart for the good purposes of God. And in him, because of our union with him, these things are also true of you and me. Identify with his sufferings, yes. But remember that because you've tasted that the Lord is good, because you have come to him and are still coming to him, you are now chosen by Jesus, by God. You are seen as precious to God. 
you are delighted in. You are celebrated in him. You are set apart for the good purposes of God. How long was this the plan? 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So were you. Ephesians 1, you were chosen and predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, this reality that we are chosen by and precious to God, I think can be hard for some of us to understand and, and really believe for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's how you were brought up or an event that has happened to you. Perhaps it's how you view yourself. For some, for some of us, it's nearly impossible to believe that through Jesus, you are chosen and precious to God. And yet, here it is in the scriptures. So on the one hand, we'll believe these big truths about Jesus, right? That he came and he died for our sins, and now we have salvation and reconciliation in him. Because why? It's in the Bible, right? It's God's word to us. Let us also believe this, that's in his word, that you are chosen by God. You are precious to God because of Jesus. Now, if you need to check out the rest of this morning and spend time just on that and thinking of the, the ramifications and the implications that God would choose you in his son Jesus and that he would see you as precious, though you may not feel that from anyone else in your life for whatever reason, just spend time thinking on that and what the implications are for your life, that God would choose you, he would love you, and he would find you precious. Think on that. Now, he is the living stone, and, in, and we, in turn, are living stones built upon him. Thankfully, we don't build buildings like they did 2,000 years ago. Architecture has improved. Any architecture majors in here? Can you imagine building buildings with just stones? Seems a little odd. So we've improved a little bit, but let's think about this. Like what, what this meant, what, what was the cornerstone for 2,000 years ago? The cornerstone had to be the perfect rock that served as the foundational piece that all the other stones on that structure were built upon. Think of like the slab for a foundation of a house. If you have a poor slab, if you have bad foundation issues on your house, your house is going to not stay up. You're going to have problems or it's going to sag. It's not going to be good. We have foundation improving companies now because of poor foundations. Similarly, the cornerstone, it had to be the, a reliable and trustworthy cornerstone in order for the rest of the building to stand. And we shouldn't be surprised at all to see Jesus referred to as the cornerstone. He's the one on whom our entire faith hinges. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus isn't alive, if he hasn't been resurrected, and we could go today and find Jesus' body in a tomb, then everything we're doing is meaningless. Your preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. He says even that you're misrepresenting God. If Jesus, if we can find his body in a tomb today, you're still in your sin, you still need a savior, and not one exists. But hold on now, Paul says, I'm paraphrasing, hold on now, if he is alive, if Jesus is alive, everything doesn't just have meaning, but the purpose and value and definition of everything is found on this cornerstone, everything. In the resurrection, Jesus was made the perfect cornerstone in which the entire house of God can be built upon. So we, as the people of God, are being built up as a spiritual house on the foundation of Jesus. Now let's talk about that. What does that mean? 
So Jesus did and said a lot of things. We know if you've been around reading the scriptures at all over the course of your life, you know that he did and said a lot of things that angered those in power, those religious leaders. But I think right near the top had to be how he spoke about the temple. This is from John 2. I think uh, just previously he had overturned the tables in the temple, which did not go over well with them. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authority? Why Why are you doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years, 46 years, can you imagine? 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was obviously speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was showing them how the presence of God is no longer tied to a building, to a physical structure. He was going to prove that in in his death and his resurrection, that he is now the embodied presence of God, that he would be destroyed, but not in finality. The temple of God would be rebuilt as he is resurrected from the grave. But surely we can have some sympathy for the religious leaders that were confused here. They're probably standing, they might have been in the temple when this happened, and they're like, what are you talking about? You're going to raise this thing that we've built in 46 years in three days. We ought to have some sympathy there for him. Jesus builds this out, though, in John 4. It's not just that uh, the presence of God was found in him. It broadens. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worship, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and in truth, and let's pick up what Peter says in verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house. What does all this mean? Those who are in Christ are now the new temple of God, which just means that we are the place where God resides. Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are seen as the spiritual household of God built upon the cornerstone of Christ side by side with other believers throughout this city, throughout this country, throughout this world, throughout ages both past and yet to come. We are the place where God is. But more than that, you're also considered priests. Your spiritual sacrifices have no effect on God apart from Jesus. We can bring nothing to him that would make us pleasing in his sight. We can offer him nothing. And yet through Jesus... Everything we do is acceptable to God because it's done through Jesus. Now, this is hard for me to comprehend with my small mind, my simple mind, all of the implications that come with these realities that you and I, along with all believers throughout the world, years and years ago and years to come, that we are the place where God lives and moves and pushes back darkness and extends the kingdom of God. What an honor for us, right? What a grace. What a God that would ask us to be the place where he lives and moves. That's remarkable. And yet, as we go towards the end of our section this morning, we see that not everyone saw it this way. Not everyone sees this as remarkable. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined 
to do. They rejected Jesus. They stumbled over him and disobeyed him as they were destined to do. Now, this is one of those texts that we find throughout the Bible that holds together the tension, the absolute sovereignty of God, and yet the accountability and responsibility of man, of humans, for their actions. There's a tension there. Both are true. I'm going to do my best to unpack this a little bit. It's possible that I'm going to open a massive can of worms, but I'm going to do my best to kind of rein us in here. What does the Bible say first about those who do find salvation in Jesus? Paul explains it in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead, we were lifeless, dead people can't do anything for themselves, we were lifeless, he made us alive together with Christ. So we could do nothing, he reaches in, he saves us because we are dead, we, have, we can do nothing for ourselves. We are on the same path that all unbelievers are on. We are dead, and yet God reached down and made us alive together with Christ. Now, how do we reconcile that with what we've just read? That they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, in an attempt to lean into this text and many others, I want to emphasize God's hand in salvation because I believe that's what the scriptures do, and I want to try to reconcile it with responsibility of man. Now, this is, a, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is a, a list that I agree mostly with that John Piper has put out on this text and others. So just follow along with me. If we believe, we, we preached from uh, 1 Peter 1.1 that we believe we have been elected by God. We are elect exiles. If we believe that some are elected, then that has to mean that some are not elected, okay? This is the other side of the coin. The mystery is how God rules over sinners without sinning himself, not that he does. Either we believe that God is sovereign over all things or we don't. We here hold to that, but, but it is hard to reconcile how God can be sovereign and in control over all things, and yet sin does still exist, right? So there's a tension there. Third statement, there are no persons who want to be saved and are prevented against their will. The person does not exist who is beating down the door of heaven, saying, God, please save me. And God says, no. That person does not exist. Statement number four, there are no persons who are not morally responsible for their unbelief. Think of yourself apart from Christ. You are responsible for your sin. And that is true of all unbelievers. You're responsible for your sin. Therefore, there are no persons whose judgment will be unjust. This is a heavy say, a heavy idea, but it's true that they are responsible for their sin. Now let's turn it for how you might feel this morning. All of us were hopelessly sinful, and none of us deserves to be delivered. I hope you feel the weight of that. That because we were dead, and he reached down and made us alive, none, we didn't earn that. We didn't earn God's favor, and yet, if we've been reconciled to God, it's because he did it. So we don't deserve to be delivered. And this last one, this is really the point of what Peter's saying in the text, and we'll get to it. Take heart in battle to exiles. None of your adversaries can thwart God's plan. This is, this is what Peter was getting at. You are exiles living in a foreign land. You're going to be mistreated and maligned and suffer for your faith in Jesus. But take heart in battle to exiles. The mistreatment and maligning and suffering you feel is somehow, some way, not outside of the sovereign hand of God. 
Now, do I understand all of this? No, (laughs) I don't. (laughs) But there is a tension here, and I believe we need to hold that tension because I believe the scriptures do. Now, because of these things, I want to say something to two groups of people in the room this morning. If you are in the room this morning, you're listening online, and you have yet to follow Jesus, I want to implore you that this morning you must do something with him. Our response towards Jesus cannot be neutral. Now, as I was studying for this morning, I was listening to other preachers and what they had to say on this text, and I came across Tony Morita, who referenced a story um, about John Stott. And this was around the time of John Stott's conversion. He was, he was a pastor and theologian. We have a lot of respect for it. You're going to hear us quote a lot. But this is around the time of Stott's conversion when he was about 16 years old at a youth camp. He first describes the preacher who was speaking at this camp. These are Stott's words. He was nothing to look at and certainly no ambassador for muscular Christianity. I mean, that just feels harsh. I mean, an old boy's taking strays out here, and he's just preaching the word of God. But he turns here. This is still Stott's words. Yet as he spoke, this very scrawny preacher, as he spoke, I was riveted. I was riveted. He confronted the boys with the question posed by Pilate, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Making it clear that neutrality was not an option. In a way, Stott says, in which I cannot express, I was bowled over by this because it was an entirely new concept that one had to do anything with Jesus. Stott later wrote, I used to think that because Jesus had died on the cross by some kind of rather mechanical transaction, that the whole world had been put right with God. I remembered how puzzled I was, even indignant. He got angry when it was first suggested to me that I needed to appropriate Christ and his salvation for myself. I thank God that later he opened my eyes to see that I must do more than acknowledge that I needed a Savior, more even than to acknowledge that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus needed to be my Savior. And this is the question that we all must wrestle with at some point, right? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him today? For those of us in the room, which is probably most of us that have professed faith in Jesus and are following him, I don't know how any of us can read this text, understanding both the implications for believers and the implications for non-believers, and come away with anything other than these two things. Number one, a deep and profound understanding of the grace of God towards you and the realization that if he did not save you, you would be destined for hell. I don't know how you read this text and come away with anything other than that. What a gift from God. And number two, I don't know how you can read this passage and come away with anything other than a fierce passion to share the good news of Jesus with everyone you know that is currently not walking with Jesus. You don't know who God is going to save. I don't know who God is going to save. What I do know is this. You and I are the means by which other people come to know Jesus. That's what I know. You and I, what we proclaim, the truths about God, the gospel message, is how people are saved. Now, what happens when you and I are silent? As we step back a bit, I want to consider this text as a whole now and give us a few things as we wrap up. 
I want us to understand that our identity being built on Jesus is both communal, that's most of what we saw today. We're living stones being built up on the cornerstone, but it's also missional. We're going to see that more in the next section, that we're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us, right? Let's ask what this means for us today. First, this ought to broaden our perspective of our own lives. Now, it can be really hard living in the day-in, day-out grind of life, right? We've got responsibilities, we've got work, we're taking care of kids, we're going to class, we're studying, we've got all these things. It can be so hard to remember that we're living in something bigger than what we just have right here in front of us. We can get so caught up in our lives that we miss who we are as the body of Christ, and that we're called as living stones together. We're working side by side on top of the foundation of Jesus. We are not living average, mundane, inconsequential lives. Because God is God and Jesus is the true living stone, everything we do ought to be done with eternity in mind. So this should broaden our perspective. This should also deepen our fellowship with one another. As you look around this room, and I'm not going to make you actually look at each other. Blake made us do that a couple weeks ago, and it made me feel so uncomfortable. So I'm not going to make you stare at the person next to you. But as you look across the room, may you recognize and appreciate that you're sitting next to other living stones Filled with the Spirit of God, yes, they're broken, yes, they're sinful, maybe you're nudging someone, but we're living stones together, built up on Jesus. We together are the dwelling place where God resides. So this ought to inform how we live in our gospel communities, how we care for one another, how we encourage and exhort one another. But more than that, as you look around the city of Norman, consider other Bible-believing and Christ-following churches. They may sing songs differently than us. They may dress up or down in comparison to us, probably up. They may believe differently than us about the spirits, the gifts of the Spirit, who should be in church leadership, the importance or unimportance of church membership. But if they're in Christ, they are too being built up into this household of God. More than that, as you look around our country, you're going to find followers of Jesus who vote. Did I go there? I did. They're going to vote differently than you. Some who think global warming is going to end our planet, and others that think it's a hoax. Some who think we landed on the moon, and others that don't. Some who cheer for this team or that team. Some who have nothing more in common with you than that they love Jesus and they live in the U.S. And yet, if they are in Jesus, they are being built up into the household of God just like you. More than that, let's look across the world. Let's just consider our church planning partners in the Czech Republic and the Middle East. As you consider who those churches are, there are followers of Jesus who eat vastly different foods than we eat, who live in vastly different cultural experiences than we do. And yet, if they are in Christ, they are being built up into the same spiritual household of God that we are. This ought to broaden our fellowship or broaden our perspective and deepen our fellowship. With one another. These truths also ought to reframe how we engage with those who don't follow Jesus. How will you be treated at times by those who don't follow the risen Christ? If we're just staying in Peter's book, he's going to say that in chapter 2, 12, they're going to speak out against you as evildoers. In 3, 16, they're going to revile you and they're going to slander you. But how are we to treat them in response? I would argue from verse 8, we're supposed to treat them with patience and understanding. 2.12, we're to treat them winsomely. 
that one day they might glorify God because of things you did and things you said with gentleness and respect. Chapter 3, 15. Remember, what did you do to achieve your salvation or your place in the kingdom of God? You did not earn it, but by God's grace, you have it. So show grace and kindness and mercy to those who don't. And maybe that starts this week at the Thanksgiving dinner table and those uncomfortable conversations we know are coming. Show them grace. And this last point I want to mention, in the midst of suffering, this ought to remind us that we are chosen by and precious to God. This is probably the hardest time to remember this truth, right? And yet it's when we need to remember it the most, that he has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He will never leave you. And even the suffering you experience, the hurt, the maligning, the loss, all of it somehow falls under the good and sovereign and wise and loving hand of God. Now, as we leave this place, I am totally cool. If you have no idea how you would answer the question, who are you? You may be confused, you may pause, you may say, can you ask that question again? In fact, I actually encourage you to make fun of every possible personality test and Enneagram joke all day long. If you have more Enneagram jokes, I would love them. I want to add to my arsenal. But my hope and prayer for you, if we're being serious this morning, is that there would be no confusion in our hearts, in our minds, about who we really are in Jesus. There should be no confusion He is the living stone upon which we collectively as the church of God are being built on. And now our true identity, the thing we identify with the most, is found in him. Maybe you can consider that. Where is my identity rooted? May it be Jesus. And as we're being built up in him and by him, filled with the Holy Spirit, let us see that our sacrifices are pleasing and acceptable to God. And may we not run out of love for those in our lives who currently stumble over the living stone that we love so much. Let's pray. God, we thank you first and foremost for Jesus. We thank you that from the very beginning, it was your will to see this whole plan to fruition that we were sinners in need of a savior. And in Jesus, you provided a way for us to be made right with you. God, we thank you and we praise you for that. God, I pray for these things that we've just mentioned, that, that this would broaden our perspective, that this would deepen our fellowship with other believers, that we would show grace and patience and mercy towards those who also love you, but we'd also show grace and mercy and patience towards those who don't remembering that we did nothing to earn this gift. It's a gift. We did nothing to earn this gift, and yet, because of your great love for us, you made us alive. May this be our motivation for living and breathing, and may it guide all of our conversations, especially this week. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.